Well, good morning, John Knox Small Group. This is, uh, this is awesome. You, you are, or we are, uh, a remnant while the rest of us are off gallivanting at uh, Lake Chelan, where it's 93 degrees and they don't have any air conditioning, and the water is 58 degrees, so it's from the hot to the cold uh, for them this week. Well, it feels a bit strange to be in this pulpit today. I've been here a couple of times over the last few years. I uh, did a little Christmas Eve uh, blurb for Union Gospel Mission about three years ago, and then the time before that was uh, giving a eulogy for my father-in-law, Harry McDonald. So that was a, a real privilege to do. Debbie and I attended this church uh, in the early 80s, part of a small group with McCrae's and Kelly's and others. And, uh, and we had a, a wonderful time in those days here at John Knox. I actually had the shortest stint as elder in John Knox history. I was elected in the fall of 94, started serving in January of 95, and then was called to be the youth pastor at First Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Renton. So a three and a half month stint as elder. I don't think anyone has beat that. I'm, I'm pretty sure of it. Um, Let me get to my page here. It was while serving at First EPC in, in Kent that I first met Jimmy McPherson. Uh, Jimmy had just graduated from Northwest University, was called to be the junior high director at our church, and so I've known Jimmy for 25 years, and it's been really fun now to be able to sit under him as my pastor. Uh, Debbie and I have been married for 47 years uh, in August. That's a long time. Thank you. She doesn't look near that old, does she? <laughs> um, I spent 16 years at First Even Evangelical Presbyterian Church, first as the youth pastor and then as the associate pastor and then senior pastor at uh, Boulevard Park Presbyterian Church for 14 years. Uh, by the way, Hope McDonald is in the care center uh, over at Judson Park. Um, we cleaned out her apartment this last weekend and Reality is she's getting closer to being with Jesus. We don't know when or how that's going to happen, but starting to make plans for next steps. And uh, she is still as sweet as can be, so let's be praying for hope. Today's text is Psalm 46, which I am really excited about because it's one of my all-time favorite texts. For those of us who have gone through some tough stuff, who've experienced some trials and tribulation, tribulations, who know the bumper sticker that says stuff happens. You know the one that I'm talking about, right? For those of us who have experienced those kinds of things, this psalm has been a comfort and an encouragement and one that has given us strength over the years. Let me give you a little background to the psalm. At the time the psalm was written, Jerusalem was surrounded by a foreign army. The event is recorded in Isaiah chapters 36 and 37 and 2 Kings 18 and 19. During the reign of Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked the city of Jerusalem. And initially, he accepted a bribe from Hezekiah to back off. Well, Sennacherib changed his mind and, uh, and surrounded the city again. An intimidation tactic, Sennacherib sent representatives to stand outside of the city walls and shout threats to those who were guarding the gates. The Assyrians boasted of the many nations that they had conquered over the years and assured the Jews that Yahweh, their God, which we know is the only God, of course, was no match for the Assyrian forces. But rather than offering Sennacherib another bribe, Hezekiah did what he should have done from the beginning. 
He prayed, and he asked the Lord for help. And in response, God sent Isaiah to Hezekiah, who assured the king that he had no reason to fear because God was going to help. And that night, an angel of the Lord came and slew 185,000 Assyrian soldiers, so that when Sennacherib woke up the next morning, he found that he was defeated and had no army left. And he returned in shame to his own land where he was later assassinated, a, a fitting end for such a cruel king. So what do we learn from this encounter that inspired the 46th Psalm? There are lots of things, but in good Presbyterian fashion, let me suggest three things. We learn of God's help, we learn of God's presence, and we learn of God's works. So first, we learn of God's help. God is our refuge and our strength and our ever-present help in times of trouble. You have to forgive me because I'm going to go back and forth between the New Revised Standard Version and the ESV, which is the one I typically use. So if you get lost and I get lost, uh, just forgive me for that. The Hebrew word for help is the word Ezra or Ezra, which in, an orig in its original form meant Yahweh helps or Yahweh is my helper. And you may recognize the name from the book of Ezra, who was the scribe and priest when God called Nehemiah to go to Jerusalem and begin rebuilding the wall. God is my helper, which is appropriate, right? The Bible is full of references of God's help. Isaiah 41.10, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Psalm 54, 4. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. Psalm 121, 1. I look to the, I look, my eyes look to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. The Israelites should have known as they had experienced God's help over and over and over again. Think of the book of Exodus. God helped them escape Egypt. God helped them cross the Red Sea. He helped them by providing food and water in the desert. He helped them by leading, leading them with a pillar of, of fire by night and a pillar of smoke by day. Over and over and over, the Israelites had been recipients of God's help. And yet, what did they do? They turned to everything else and everyone else in their time of need. Hezekiah turned to his own wisdom. Well, I'm just going to offer Sennacherib a, a bribe. Surely that'll take care of the problem. And what did it get him? Another date with Sennacherib. The book of Kings and Chronicles reveal a bunch of wicked kings who turned to foreign gods for help. What was the result? Punishment, invasion, and exile. Abraham turned to Hagar when Sarah wasn't able to produce a son in timely fashion. David, the man after God's own heart, turned to Bathsheba to quench his desires. Solomon turned to power and wealth. Jacob turned to deception. Even Adam and Eve, who actually walked with God, with God in the garden, turned to a pursuit of knowledge of good and evil over God's help. And we do the same, don't we? We believe our accumulated wisdom will help us make the right decision. Oh, we may not have foreign gods, 
but we certainly have plenty of idols that we turn to for security. Friends, family, job, bank accounts, education, guns, politics, and the list goes on and on. Rather than waiting on God for help, we do that which is expedient. We look for love in all the wrong places, security in all the wrong things, and help in the, all the wrong sources. I work in the men's shelter with Seattle's Union Gospel Mission, right in the heart of downtown Seattle. We're working with men who are desperately seeking help, who are coming out of addiction and homelessness and mental illness. The main issues that they're dealing with that have led them to either their homelessness or addiction are generally three things, abuse, abandonment, and neglect. And then on top of that, they're dealing with their own internal issues, guilt, shame, and failure. And on top of that, many, if not most, are dealing with some level of mental health issue. It's no wonder they're turning to drugs and alcohol to numb the pain. And they come to us seeking help. So what do we do? It's a big problem. Where do we start? Well, the first thing we do is help with the things that we can help with, the tangible things. We offer shelter and food and community and a program that will hopefully move them towards stabilization and recovery. Or we get them to other sources that may be able to better meet their needs. At the end of the day, our goal is to point them to Christ, who is the ultimate source of help, amen? So, how do we do that? Well, our mission statement at the men's shelter is transforming lives through building relationships and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we hook up every person that comes into the program with a case manager who, at the very outset, begin to build relationships with those men who are desperately seeking help. And then in that context, looking for opportunities to share the gospel because we believe that the gospel transforms lives. Paul said it in, in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for I see it as the power of God working for the salvation for everyone who believes it. Right? We're the Seattle's Union Gospel Mission and have been since 1932. And we see lives transformed every, every, every day through the power of the gospel. So the $64,000 question is, what is the gospel? I want you to think about that for a minute. If someone were to come to you and ask, what is the gospel, what would you say? Well, and the answer is, the gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. That's the essence of the gospel. If you wanted to shorten that up a little bit, Jesus came to save sinners. If you wanted to do the really short version, the gospel is Jesus. His death, his resurrection, his incarnation, his indwelling by the Holy Spirit. The gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. And what we believe is that men coming into program need all kinds of things, but at the end of the day, what they need most is to come to a face-to-face -face relationship with Jesus Christ because he alone can not only save, he alone transforms lives. So we get that opportunity every day. David Floyd and I both work with Union Gospel Mission, and we get to see lives changed every day.
figure out where I'm at. I got carried away. I was so excited about the gospel, I got carried away on my notes. So it's the same for us, right? Where, where do we turn for help? And the answer is we turn to all kinds of things, but at the end of the day, God asks us to turn to him, for he is our help. Secondly, Psalm 46 teaches us about God's presence. Verse 4, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God was within her. She will not fall. God will help her at the break of day. Nations are in uproar. Do we see that today? <laughs> Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice and the earth melts. For God's people in the Old Testament, Jerusalem was indeed the holy city. And it was the dwelling place of God. And within the walls of the holy city was the holy temple. And within the walls of the holy temple was the holy of holies. And within the holy of holies was the Ark of, Ark of the Covenant which indicated the presence of God, which is mind-blowing in and of itself. The God of the universe chose to make his presence known in a very specific location to a very specific people and a very specific point in history. Daniel Hyde of Ligonier Ministries put it this way, the eternal God who is not constrained by the existence of time the infinite God who is not bound by constraints of space, the transcendent God who dwells above and beyond all time and space, and the immense God who fills all time and space condescended to the weakness of his people and became manifest for the benefits in one locale. This God is not bound by time, but he bound himself to the time-bound experience of his people. This God is not bound by space, but he bound himself to this box. He, above, he is above all creational constraints, but he bound himself to them. He is everywhere, but he is there. Psalm 46 reminds us of God's presence. And even more, God chose to stoop and humble himself in the person of Jesus and dwelt among us, right? The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have beheld his glory, the glory of the one and only. In other words, God's presence became reachable and attainable, and no longer do we have to go to a specific place at a specific time. He's accessible 24-7, as it were. And not only can we be assured of God's presence, we can be assured that God is with us. Joshua 1.9, be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God is what? He's with you wherever you go. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 28, and behold, I am with you always, even to the ends of the earth. And the writer of Hebrews reminds us that God will never leave us or forsake us. God is with us. So God's presence is available. He's with us. But like the commercial says, but wait, there's more. Not only do we have access to his presence, not only can we be assured that he is with us, God is in us. And I don't mean in a new age kind of way. God is in us. The psalmist writes that God is within the holy city. But God goes one step further. For followers of Christ, Christ dwells in us, in each of us. 
1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? John 14, 16 to 17, and I will ask the Father, and he, he will give you another helper to be with you forever, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And then lastly, Colossians 1.27. And the secret is this, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Mind-blowing that the God of the universe would choose to dwell in creations like you and me. Incredible. So we have access to God's presence. We can be assured that God is with us. And we have the confidence that God is in us in the person of the Holy Spirit. So why does that matter? What difference does it make? So let me tell you a story. Joe, whom David also knows, 58 years old, and he's struggled with alcohol for decades. He's tried to quit drinking a number of times by himself. He's been set through several treatment programs and nothing worked, and he ended up at Seattle's Union Gospel Mission looking for help. And what he found was a community of people who pointed him to Christ. Here's what he said. I finally found the help that I needed. I found that God could help me by changing the way I thought, changing my desires, and giving me the strength I needed each day to follow him. I discovered that God is real, that he loves me and has a plan for me, and that he walks with me every day. I'm so grateful. Today, I just want to serve God and help people. A guy who's been an alcoholic for 58 years, struggling, looking for help, and he found it. And he's realized now that God is with him and that he is in him. Psalm 46 reminds us of God's presence. And then lastly, the psalm reminds us of God's works. Come, behold the works of the Lord, the psalmist says. Remember what, what was going on as the writer wrote this. Jerusalem had been surrounded by the Assyrian army and it looked grim. One writer put it this way. The situation looked hopeless for the people of God. Defeat looked to be inedible, inevitable. Death appeared inescapable. The grave was looming. It seemed there was no way of breaking this bleak outcome. But God intervened and sent the angel and slew 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one fell swoop. He makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burned the shields with fire. This just wasn't a figure of speech for the Israelites. They had witnessed it. They were eyewitnesses to this very thing. And the psalmist is calling the people to behold the works of the Lord. And he calls us to do the same today. We need to recall the powerful works that God has done in our midst both individually and corporately. Prayers that he's answered on our behalf. Needs that he has supplied. Situations that he has controlled. Circumstances that he has overruled. We need to remember that what God has done for us in the past to give us confidence that he will work with us and for us today as well as in the future. 28 years ago, I had a Psalm 46 experience. 
my kidneys had failed after 20 years of struggling with diabetes. I was on dialysis, waiting for a transplant. I felt awful, and the situation felt hopeless. It felt like, as the psalmist says, the earth was giving way, and the mountains were quaking and falling into the sea, and the waters were roaring and foaming. I mean, it just felt like that. It was miserable. But then I got the call, right in the middle of a church Christmas dinner, surrounded by 400 friends. I got a call from the hospital that they had received a kidney and pancreas, and I needed to get to the hospital post-haste. So on December 11th, 1993, I received a kidney and pancreas from a 16-year-old girl who had died in a snowmobile accident in Alaska. God had intervened in a miraculous way. The battle wasn't over. There was still plenty of stuff to get through, months of recovery and rejection episodes and hospital stays. And, uh, but what I found was, was that God was literally my refuge and my strength. I would not have gotten through those days without that sense. So to this day, Debbie and I behold the works of the Lord and we're grateful for the 28 additional years that he's given us. But we get to share the story with each other and our family and with friends, pointing to the miraculous works and presence of God. We need to do that on a regular basis. We need to recall the miraculous works of God they have witnessed in our own lives and in the lives of those we know in the lives of church. Those times increase our confidence. They increase our trust in God, that he is, in he is indeed at work and watching out for us and providing for us, that he is our refuge and our strength and our ever-present help. I read uh, Ann Boskamp's book, 1,000 Gifts, several years ago. And as a result, I determined to write down three gifts, three blessings, three works of the Lord each day. And this morning I was on 2,266 of the works of the Lord that I had witnessed. And here's what it does for me. It reminds me of God's presence. It reminds me that God is with me. And it reminds me each and every day that God is still about the business of answering prayer. So I just encourage you. Have a sheet of paper. Write it out in your Bible. Three ways in which you have beheld the works of the Lord. And then I'll end with this. The psalm ends with probably the most famous verse in all of 46. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I am exalted in all the earth. When we remember that God is our refuge and our strength, and our ever-present help, when we hold on to the fact that God's presence is available to us, that he's with us, and not only with us, that he's in us, when we behold the works of the Lord, it causes us, it allows us to be still, to be confident, to trust God. We don't have to be agitated or worried or upset or believe that the sky is falling as we look at the world around us and turn on the news we don't have to fall into that trap we can be confident even in the midst of the trials and storms that God is still in control that God is sovereign that he's still on his throne 
which then leads us to praise and worship. I am exalted among the nations. I am exalted in all the earth. So my questions for you this morning is, where are you turning for help today? Are you aware of God's presence in your life, that God is with you and in you? And what works of the Lord are you seeing, both in your life and in your families and in this congregation?